Hello and welcome to another episode of the Carriage House Planning Report. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, my name is Casey Fulp. I am the owner and principal of Carriage House Planning. And I want to welcome you today. Um, for today's uh, episode, we're going to go back to the TAC room and take a tactical look at the state of markets and shed some insight on what we're seeing in terms of not only the recent market action, uh, the the direction that same things may very well be taking as we move forward, um, but also reflect on some insights that we can gain from the general trend shifts or the secular trend shifts that may be occurring in the markets right now. This is something that I've mentioned uh, briefly in previous episodes, the general theme of a shift from growth to value leadership in investments is catching the eye of mainstream media news you know financial news media uh, but it's something that you know, I think it does deserve a deeper look and I will be happy to share with you my general thoughts on where we stand with that potential shift and whether or not there's a actionable moment now or, or why or why you might not want to take action um for today's conversation, though, we're going to do something a little new, something we haven't done in previous episodes, and that is we're going to reference a number of charts that I'm going to be posting to the Carriage House Planning blog. Uh, I will put a link to the blog uh, in the show notes for the podcast, so if you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, uh, you can click through to that link. Uh, but if you are listening to this directly on the blog, of course, just scroll down. I'm going to have the uh, charts just below where the media player is. In the conversation, in referencing these charts, I think it'll help give a really nice visual illustration of some of these concepts that we're talking about today, and it'll provide a greater appreciation for the uh, general outlook that we hold at Carriage House Planning for the current direction of the markets and how it is and why we're positioning clients' uh, portfolios the way that we are. We can also gain some insight into general economic direction uh, when we look at the state of markets as they are, and it might shed some insight into what we can expect with uh, some of the broader reaching items that affect everyone as we uh, conduct our, our own financial planning and our wealth management planning, uh, looking ahead at the horizon and trying to recognize you know, what impacts may affect us more than others, what are more probable, less probable, etc., to kick things off, what I want to first highlight is that there's a difference in many, well, there's many differences in how you can evaluate the markets. There's often, I believe, I, I have sensed in being in this, in this you know, professional capacity for the greater part of more than a decade, um, that there are investors who have have the belief that there is a right and a wrong way to invest, that there's a right and a wrong way to evaluate markets. And let me dispel that rumor immediately. If there was a right way, there wouldn't be markets. There wouldn't be traders. If there was a right way to do it, everyone would eventually have figured out the right way. Everyone would do it and it would create an inefficiency in terms of the markets. The markets rely on differing opinions in order to create what semblance of efficiency they have. Uh, so we need to, to start off by recognizing that there is no right way. What 
tends to, and statistically speaking, what on a historical basis is the right way, is much less how you invest, but instead how well you stick to an investment discipline. And that's a key differentiator. I think it's lost on so many people. But having a defined discipline for not only when and why you buy something, but also when and why you sell something. You should know what is the workout period of an investment. In other words, when you make a purchase, how long is it until that particular investment is supposed to do what you expect it to do? There are some investments that shouldn't work out for 20 or 30 years. But there's some investments you can make that should do what they're supposed to do in three, five months. You're going to get those out there who say, you, know, you need to learn from Warren Buffett. Well, frankly, yes, there are principles that he employs that are wonderful. But to invest just like him, it's not tenable for most people. It's not practical either. And it's an important distinction to make as an investor to recognize that it's much less the investments themselves as it is whether or not you have a discipline and it helps to be a good discipline, one that's well-tested, a theory that is uh, fundamentally sound, and have a discipline that you're able to stick to, to actually abide by the discipline rather than allow your emotions in a current state to dictate how you evaluate things. Um, I've used it in a previous episode titled Blind Spots. We talked about how uh, one for me personally, a blind spot that, that I recognize is that I was allowing last year with the COVID shutdowns, I was allowing my particular uh, view on how a government imposed shutdown would uh, had have negative effects on markets in general. And for that reason, when my discipline said I should be re-entering markets, I felt a reluctance. I, I just naturally didn't want to follow my own discipline. Fortunately, I, I, in short order, did follow my discipline, and it was uh, it rewarded me for doing so. But I could make 101 excuses as to why the market shouldn't have done what it did over the past year. I could still make those same excuses. It shouldn't have done this. But there are factors outside of a rationality let's say the Fed, right? The Federal Reserve's impact on markets cannot be understated. It's just a fact of where we are and how we're operating in terms of our economic policy, financial policy, monetary policy. Um, but my emotions aren't very good at analyzing those things. Neither are yours. And I don't mean that in any way to be disrespectful. Uh, but that's just how we are as people. And that's okay. But one of the other cool things about us as people is we have this ability to create defined methods. We have maps, for example. We have maps and we can create a route and we can stick to that route. Or we can deviate from that route if signs say, hey, this road is closed. You know, <laughs> if, if you're driving along, you know what trajectory or what, what roads you're planning on taking to get to your destination. And while it makes total sense on the map, you get to a road and it's, hey, road is closed, okay, you need to then say, hey, my discipline is I'm not going to just drive straight into the barricade. <laughs> that doesn't make a lot of sense. You're going to deviate. You're going to either reevaluate your map. You're going to use a GPS that auto re reroutes for you. That idea, though, is that you have a discipline and you're going to stick to it. Your, your, your discipline is not well, I don't believe the sign that says the road is closed. I'm just going to keep going and hope I don't hit something. 
that's often what happens when people make emotional decisions with their investments. They feel as though it's the right thing to do, but there's no discipline guiding it. So, you know, I took a little bit of a sidebar there. I wanted to get that principle out of the way because I think it's something that is often overlooked. But as we look at how we analyze markets, to give a distinction quickly between two different major schools of market analysis, school one being fundamental analysis, school two being technical analysis. Fundamental is how to identify good quality investments. Technical analysis is when to own and when not to own good quality investments. So with that, in taking a technical look at the NASDAQ 100, I think generally speaking, most people would agree that if you wanted to buy the NASDAQ 100, probability favors that you're buying good investments. Now, could you buy them and hold them into perpetuity? Sure. However, as an investor, specifically one who's an individual, this is your personal finance, this is an institutional money, you have a timeline. You are living in a life that has uh, guide rails defined by the calendar and the clock. The market does not. The market goes on into perpetuity so long as we as a species uh, afford it the opportunity to do so. But our individual lives they ebb and flow, they change, but they are defined by a window of time in which we inhabit this earth. So for that reason, we don't necessarily have the ability to weather any and all storms into perpetuity. That's why in traditional investment theory and, and you know, theory that I am not so much a fan of, but uh, many investors are, this whole buy and hold concept buy a certain proportion of the portfolio in stocks, a certain proportion in bonds, a certain proportion in cash, whatever it might be, and kind of set it and forget it. I disagree with that completely because, quite frankly, your life is going to change. It's going to evolve. It's going to surprise you with good and bad uh, along the way. And for that reason, you may not be well-positioned into perpetuity to simply set it and forget it and then go to it when you need it most and that's the worst possible time to go to the investments. We want to instead be a little bit more tactical, a little bit more hands-on and that is to uh, evolve with the markets as the market evolves and afford you as an investor the opportunity to benefit from the weight of the evidence in whatever direction it's pointing us. Okay, there's a little understanding of technical analysis uh, and fundamental analysis and, and why we're using technical analysis. So let's look at the NASDAQ 100 currently. I want to bring this up because this is going to play into the conversation around uh, growth versus value and whether leadership is, is changing hands from growth to value, whether value stocks are going to be where you want to be invested as far as your equity going forward uh, and is now the right time to make the change. The NASDAQ 100 does have those big tech names in it. It has some financials, which are value, generally. Uh, but when we're looking at the NASDAQ 100, it, it tends to have this vibe or this feeling, this general understanding that it's going to be tech-heavy. So with that, and being that it is growth-centric because, or, or as a product of being tech-heavy, we want to look at that and say, okay, in, an, in a vacuum, regardless of what value is doing over there in a relative context, just simply in a vacuum, is the NASDAQ 100 kind of peaking? 
to put it bluntly, have we reached a top in the NASDAQ 100's ascent? And we should we be expecting perhaps a pullback, perhaps a period of extended consolidation? A consolidation is effectively when you when you see a, a market experience ups and downs on a day-to-day basis, but really go nowhere. It's kind of like a rocking chair market. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Um, currently, I have a few different indicators that are giving me pretty credible evidence that perhaps we have not yet reached our top. I'll encourage you to take a look at some of the charts that I'm putting in the blog post that I mentioned earlier. Um, the first two of these charts will showcase uh, a minor and a major Elliott wave pattern that has formed quite nicely with the NASDAQ 100. And those two uh, indicators working on different, think of it as time scales, um, are both giving a pretty good indication that there is some room left to the upside. I currently have a target for the NASDAQ 100 to reach approximately 14,000 to 14,100. At that point in time, I'll be evaluating closely as it would not be uh, out of the question to see that it might then begin entering a consolidation period. And as far as the timeline is concerned, uh, we, we may not necessarily reach that area uh, immediately, but I would anticipate that we do so sometime before the, the second week of May. But it's important to note that this is predicated on the NASDAQ 100 holding two significant support lines. Um, the most significant of the two, the absolute support that uh, it simply cannot violate, it cannot go down below about 13,312. That to me is, is indication that we've broken the uh, Elliott wave cycle that, uh, or Elliott wave pattern that we are using to help guide our projections for the future. And a breakdown through that would suggest that there's going to be continued selling uh, at, at a minimum. There's going to be some significant consolidation. Uh, but before we can hit that level where the most notable support is and what I'm finding to be quite interesting right now as I continue to record this is, is this particular support is, is proving to be a very um, uh, significant support. And that is at 13708. 13708 uh, by Elliott Wave calculations should be the support for the fourth leg of the five leg or five wave Elliott Wave analysis. As of the close of business on the 20th of April, we came down pretty close. We ended up getting to 13730. Then on the 21st, we ended up seeing an intraday low come in at 13.717. And I actually am recording this over two different days. So now here I am on the 22nd. And uh, with the news that has quote unquote leaked from the New York Times about Biden's proposal, and I, I don't know why this is shocking markets. This was included in his administration's initial uh, notes regarding his tax plan. But I guess the f- idea that this is becoming more solid in their planning tactics, the idea that the capital gains tax rate very well may double for those who are earning more than a million a year. Uh, it seems that that's a, a catalyst for some selling. But when it comes to the NASDAQ 100, that particular selling as of today 
has left us uh, at an intraday low as the time of recording at 13,716. So that 13,708 level is holding true and fast. It's proving to be uh, a resilient support. And each and every time we come down near it, but don't cross through it, uh, it provides additional confirmation that, that we are, in fact, in the trend pattern that we're in. Now, with that being the case, what we have seen in the broader context of that growth to value tug of war is that value really made a hard dash at that period of time in which the NASDAQ 100 sold off that time frame from mid-February to the beginning to middle of March. In that period of time, we saw a variety of uh, value positions for the sake of using index proxies to measure the value marketplace. We saw them take uh, relative leadership uh, away from growth. And, and they kind of, you know, if, if it's a game of capture the flag, they stole the flag. Uh, but they didn't necessarily make it to their home base. And that's where we get into the conversation about whether or not these changes are actionable now. So to loop back to our analysis of the NASDAQ 100, if in fact the NASDAQ 100 continues to fulfill this Elliott wave pattern that uh, I recognize occurring in the short term or the minor wave pattern, and if it also uh, continues to follow the major wave pattern that we can find a starting point about the, the lows of, of late September of 2020, there's still some upside there. And with that upside, that is a pretty good clue that if I had to use a word, let's call it a shakeout period is in effect. We're, we're sort of seeing that, yes, there is a leadership change uh, almost certain, but you never want to be the one that, that jumps on that trend change right away because it could be a head fake. You'll have to forgive my abuse of uh, field day analogies uh, from grade school, but uh, you know, I mentioned capture the flag, and in this case, tug of war. When when we are seeing that transition change, and we've kind of got that tug of war, the rope is taut. the The center line of the rope kind of keeps wavering back and forth, back and forth, and that's when you know both parties sort of have a lot of energy in their tanks. They're they're feeling uh, you know aggressive. They're they're pulling with all their might. However, eventually, you start to recognize that that center line tilts one side to one side. And it tends to stay to that one side. And that's, that's usually the side that's uh, able to endure longer uh, and their strength maintains while the other, you know, finds exhaustion or whatever it is that, that becomes their eventual demise. But where we are right now is we're watching that center line sort of just flip back and forth, back and forth. And you don't want to make an investment decision during that period of time. Many times, and, and this is not just in, in the context of what we're talking about right now, but just in general, a rule of thumb, one of the best investment decisions you can make, especially in times of uncertainty, is no decision at all. And I know that sounds a little bit like a, uh, a cheap way out or maybe a, an easy way out, but the truth is, is that some of the worst decisions that investors make are ones where they're trying to get ahead of what might be the next boom or the next uh, success in terms of investing. While that might be a desirable concept, it's the equivalent of playing the lottery in a sense. Yes, there is a statistical chance you can win. However, the odds are unfavorable that you will 
pick the perfect numbers. When you're going through these times of transition, when there's a, especially a big secular leadership change, a very broad uh, you know, market shift, you don't want to rush because if that broad shift does in fact occur, because of the size and the magnitude of it, it will likely last for an extended period of time. So the risk-reward ratio is really skewed towards risk when that period of transition is in effect. But the reward really begins to outweigh the risk as that transition starts to shake out and leadership becomes much more clear. Now, when we dive into the details in a more specific analysis of the broader trend, uh, the relative trend between growth and value, I look to two different comparisons. The first is the S&P 500 pure growth index versus the S&P 500 pure value index. But I also, especially in the context of what we've seen in the past three to five months, I look at the Russell 2000 growth index versus the Russell 2000 value index. The difference between the two is really the size of the companies represented in those two indices. The S&P 500 representing large cap generally companies and the Russell 2000 much more representative of small cap. However, in today's uh, day and age, small and mid caps often shift back and forth uh, pretty regularly. So to say that these are ultra small companies is a bit of an overstatement. That's not the case, but they are small to mid cap companies. So kind of starting at the top and working our way down. If we look at the S&P 500 pure growth to pure value comparison, and, and again, referencing a chart that I have posted in the blog, we can see a really bizarre explosion occur in this charting. What I do to an, analyze the two is I, I look at things from a point and figure charting perspective. But in the case of the chart that I have posted on the blog, uh, what I'm looking at is I'm taking the price of the pure growth and I'm dividing it by the price of the pure value to get an understanding of the leadership at a given time. The way that you would interpret this is if that particular graph is going up, it means that growth is becoming stronger as compared to value. If it's going down, the, uh, the inverse is true. But we can see that there is this pretty steady uh, battle, but it was in favor of growth but a pretty steady battle that had waged for, goodness, I can probably zoom it out and find that it's been waged for the better part of, of the past 10 years. We did see that value had some uh, moments of glory uh, in, in 2010, one in 2011, 2012, uh, but as a whole, growth typically recovered leadership fairly quickly. However, once we accelerate forward into 2019 and 20, we can see on a trend basis, starting in really 2016, growth began accelerating in terms of its uh, strength over value. Um, this is, is due in part to the fact that the Trump administration did at least in the initial onset of the administration, uh, you know, taking office, they held fairly true to their commitment to attempting to shrink, if not the government, government uh, intervention and regulation. 
More often than not, government regulation tends to act like a wet blanket on the private sector. Um, sometimes that can actually be a good thing. I'm not going to go extreme uh, in this, although at times I, I feel as though I need to. But the reality of the situation is, is that most government regulation, especially with the size of the government today, becomes such a burden and a bane to the economy that uh, companies, they deal with it, they move along. But when, they, when, when those uh, pressures are released or, or, or if anything, just simply mitigated, uh, the benefits are aggressive and, and exponential. And we can see that a trend really started to develop towards the uh, right there at the end of 2016. And there began to be a, a big leadership dominance for growth. But that really was, it pales in comparison to what happened in 2020. Following the shutdown, because again, what we've talked about a little bit already, the stay-at-home stocks, the COVID stocks, the tech growth stocks that were able to operate not only efficiently and effectively in an economy that was otherwise mandated to shut down, uh, they exploded forward. And in that uh, process, the spread between growth and value accelerated tremendously. So the last time we saw an explosion of that nature and it, it's hardly, you know, a, a direct comparison, but was the, the last time we saw that was really in January of 2009. And if you think about it, that was right on the heels of the 2007, 8, and 9 Great Recession. Now, the recession, of course, didn't start in 2007. It did start in 2008. Uh, but with the Fed's monetary policy easing, with the aggressive tactics taken by both the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government to quote-unquote stimulate the economy, what it really does is it basically puts shackles on the value marketplace and in turn uh, you know, gives um, accelerants to the growth economy. And there's merits to that. There's also some significant detractors to that. But we can see that kind of trend play out. When we look more closely at what the 2008-9 explosion in growth over value, we can, we can maybe draw some parallels. There just so happened to be a kind of peak and, and the, the kind of crescendo in, believe it or not, March of 2009. So it really wasn't much after the bottom the, that happened in 2009, which was in February, we saw this rapid acceleration up of growth over value. And then we saw this kind of uh, quick you know, decline and sort of trying to trace back to some sense of normalcy between the two. But then there was a last little spike up, sort of a, a last hurrah for growth. And then you really kind of got things back down into what would be the normal trend. It just so happens that Again, we can't compare these things apples to apples, but we're definitely seeing that we saw this rapid spike up with the uh, government's injection of liquidity to the market, of support, of you know, stimulus check, everything else that, that the government has done over the past couple of months. We saw that rapid acceleration upwards. In this case, it lasted quite a bit longer, but so has the stimulus in this case. It's, it's really uh, prolonged. And then... We saw that precipitous dip that we experienced there in 
February to March. But now we're kind of eking back up with growth. So there's a high probability, there's a good chance, maybe, in fact, we do have history that doesn't necessarily repeat, but it rhymes. We might see that this is, in fact, the last little leg up, the last little hurrah for growth. And then either we just simply trace back to a normal range where growth and value sort of go back to a tug of war into perpetuity, or perhaps value really does take notable leadership over growth. That's yet to be determined, but I do think it's interesting when we scale our viewpoint out a little bit, when we kind of zoom away from things and we look at it in the context of, of a broader history, we can definitely see that what we're experiencing that right now in terms of the uh, elevated um, strength of growth over value, it is not normal. It is very much an anomaly. And one could argue it is an anomaly that is not naturally occurring. It's an anomaly brought on by uh, exogenous factors or maybe not so exogenous, but uh, governmental uh, imposition and Federal Reserve imposition. But zooming back in to the specifics of the 2020 to 2021 scenario that we're currently experiencing, we do in fact see that in the uh, S&P 500 growth to S&P 500 value, the, the leadership is very much so uh, favoring value, but because we've seen this leg up in growth, we're not to the point where we can make a conclusive decision. So what we might do then is that's where we might turn to the Russell 2000. Small cap stocks generally are going to be a leading indicator in comparison to large cap stocks. The reason being is small cap stocks uh, by virtue of being small, they tend to be a bit more nimble. They tend to be able to pivot and move a little bit quicker in terms of uh, political interference or political uh, risk in terms of socioeconomic risk. But they also don't tend to have the major global uh, reach that their large cap counterparts have. And for that reason, they give us a much clearer picture of what's really going on here in the United States uh, rather than those ultra-large companies that, while they do have a lot of the same shared risks that their uh, smaller counterparts have, their extended reach in the global marketplace does afford them some insulations, and therefore they don't necessarily move as quickly, nor do they have to. Um, but when we look at the Russell 2000, we can see a, a pretty compelling scenario playing out. However, in this case, and I hate to put another uh, yes but <laughs> into the conversation, we're seeing the very same uh, resurgence of growth, that sort of what could be the last hurrah, as we are in the large caps. So there's no conclusive evidence yet that the uh, baton has been passed, that the tug of war is in fact over, uh, that the, the center line on that rope has clearly moved uh, to one side over the other. It's not there yet. We've also seen, as of the past five to six days, I suppose, we've seen some significant weakness developing in the, um, in the, the small cap marketplace. Small caps as a whole were doing exceedingly well as compared to large caps uh, post the February to March sell-off. Small caps really surged upwards, some would suggest that that's on the grounds that 
uh, Biden's potential tax plan to fund his uh, pipe dream of an infrastructure project is is primarily going to affect those largest of large companies. And, and it, it will, based on what the Biden administration has provided in terms of guidance on uh, the potential corporate tax changes. So maybe that's what uh, fueled the small cap markets. But it's also worth noting that small caps tend to respond quite favorably to declines in the valuation of the U.S. dollar. Uh, it just so happens that from that uh, you know, late September to October time frame, the dollar had appreciated quite a bit. And then leading into November, it had been on a pretty steady decline uh, to the end of 2020 and into the early part of 2021. And with that decline, that really kind of gave a runway for small caps to begin uh, a, a relative appreciation as compared to large caps. Um, but, you know, as, as you know, early 2021 has played out, the dollar began to regain some significant strength. And, and that is going to put some uh, pressure on the small caps, which revealed itself in terms of how the Russell 2000 as a whole, regardless of growth and value, how it, how it has reacted over the past week or so. So where do we stand? We have a NASDAQ 100 that is, again, as of right now, it is staying true to a very compelling Elliott Wave pattern. We've got a notable support line at 13708. We've got a secondary absolute support that can't be violated at 13,312. We have a S&P 500 pure growth compared to S&P 500 pure value, uh, showing that while value has definitely asserted itself, it hasn't quite yet won the tug of war. And if we zoom into the small cap marketplace, we can see a very similar story being told between the Russell 2000 pure growth and the Russell 2000 value. So as of right now, we're in a position of waiting. We are not making any adjustments in our portfolios as of the time being, the current time. That doesn't mean that as we cross into the first few days of May, we won't be making changes. A lot can happen in the last week of the month. Again, this is the last week of the strongest six-month period uh, historically. Uh, the six months, again, beginning in November and ending in April, are, are those are historically the strongest six months of market performance with the classic sell in May and go away uh, kicking off the uh, weakest six months. There's only so much you can take from something that uh, generic and broad in terms of, of guidance for the markets. Uh, as of right now, there's no indication that we want to sell everything away but we will most likely find ourselves repositioning sometime before the middle of May. In a perfect world, we'll find that that support level for the NASDAQ 100 maintains, and then we end up reaching a point where we break through to a new high. But we know that that new high is going to be uh, truncated. It's not going to be a, a rapid acceleration forward. There's a high probability that we'll end up seeing a resistance uh, somewhere around the 14,100, 14,200. Uh, at most, 14,500 is where I'm currently uh, marking the, the absolute peak. And at that point, we do anticipate that growth as a whole will begin to consolidate. And if the value uh, plays out there, 
continue to, to take the leadership away uh, so long as we don't have anything that presents uh, evidence that we should not be invested in the domestic marketplace, we're probably going to find ourselves rotating towards those value investments. Whether we invest uh, primarily in large cap or if we spread between large, mid, and smalls has yet to be determined. I'd like to believe that we see some added strength develop uh, again in the Russell 2000 and in the small cap uh, segment of the marketplace. However, if we end up finding that uh, the dollar strengthens aggressively or, or some other factor that impacts, and some other factor in this case being taxes, impacts the small cap marketplace in a uh, aggressive way, um, being that, that you know, perhaps the Biden administration suggests that their corporate taxation will affect small caps, you know, that, that will probably rob uh, the, the hot air balloon of, of, its, of its heat and, and the small caps will probably uh, kind of sink down a little bit. And for that reason, we may end up focusing in that large cap space. Uh, that is to be determined. But as for right now, uh, we are going to kind of sit pretty where we are. We're not looking to make any radical changes, uh, but we do anticipate having changes coming down the pipeline in the short term uh, time horizon. And on that note, I will conclude today's Carriage House Planning Report. Uh, thank you for visiting the TAC room with me. I know that we kind of bounced around a little bit, but generally speaking, we kept the focus uh, on the conversation between growth and value. Uh, in the upcoming Carriage House Planning Report, I expect that the time has come that we're going to have to get down and dirty with taxes. We're going to have to talk about what's on the table, who's most likely to be impacted, uh, dispel the rumors that this is only going to impact those who make $400,000 or more a year, which is the platform on which Biden uh, campaigned. Um, the effects of raising taxes, we will have to discuss whether or not they're actually beneficial. Um, a lot of that's going to be left for interpretation, but there are going to be a few points that we can say uh, very objectively and and. I think diving into and better understanding what we should be anticipating with the tax law changes can help us better frame how we want to position ourselves as we move into the middle of the year and towards the end of the year. There may be some actionable items that we can do now to circumvent what might be negative implications of tax law changes in the years coming. But we also need to be mindful and aware of how these tax changes will impact some of the broader planning considerations that you have as far as your financial plan and your wealth management plan is concerned. If you do not have a financial plan, if you do not have a financial planner, and if you don't have someone, an expert, helping you navigate the investment marketplace, I would be honored to have the opportunity to talk with you. I encourage you, please reach out to Carriage House Planning. You can find us on the web at www.carriagehouseplanning.com. You can also email us at info at carriagehouseplanning.com. And it would be wonderful to listen to where you are, better understand what you've been doing, why it has and hasn't worked. And perhaps we may find that there's a, an opportunity for us to forge a relationship with you so that you can better navigate your financial future and find what you define as financial freedom, however that definition might be for you. 
But until next time, have a great day. And thank you again for joining us on the Carriage House Planning Report. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Investment advisory and financial planning services are offered through Carriage House Planning, LLC, a registered investment advisor authorized to do business in states where registered or otherwise exempt from registration. Nothing discussed during the show should be viewed as investment advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please contact us at 727-643-8666, or you can schedule an introductory meeting via our website at www.carriagehouseplanning.com.